Hello and welcome to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. If you're subscribed and returning to our weekly show, thank you. If you're with us for the first time, welcome. It's nice to have you. Right Now posts on Thursdays on YouTube and in your preferred podcast app. And I would love if you would hit that subscribe button. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram with the username at RightlyAJ. I'm on Twitter also, would love those follows, at Stephen underscore Kent 89. I am ready and waiting with open DMs for hate mail or your show of solidarity in the form of obscure anime gifts every single day. All right, we've got a great show for you. My guest is Liz Wolf, staff editor for Reason Magazine, and our topic is going to be the people who want to monitor and judge your every interaction online. This stems from the debate over the rise of Clubhouse, an audio-only, invite-only app that takes the fundamentals of Discord, marries it with a never-ending South by Southwest conference environment for iPhone users only. Sorry, Androids. I hope you see the error in your ways. But anyway, so not a big surprise, this app is very controversial. The mainstream media and vanguards of fact-based journalism are worried because the little people, you, me, the unverified masses, are lacking blue check marks and talking to one another unsupervised. We have that to get into, plus a brand new segment in partnership with our friends at the Narratives Project about the border crisis and immigration. We're going to break down why the entire country can see more or less the same thing happening at the border, and liberals and conservatives come away with the conclusion that they and only they corner the market on virtue, while everybody else, well, they're evil. All right, that does it for housekeeping. Now I am thrilled to welcome Liz Wolf to right now. Liz, thanks for coming down and grabbing that train to DC. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. How are you feeling? I understand you just got the vaccine. Is your arm hurting? I am both in pain physically and I'm in pain as a libertarian because the vac site I went to was actually uh, surprisingly well done. I went to the Javits Center in Manhattan uh-huh. and it was all run by National Guard members. Um, and like when dudes in uniform tell you to go a certain way, holy crap, do people comply. That it sounds was scary. I got mine at it CVS. Was. <laughs> like it, was, it was super boring. It was just like just random people snaking around the CVS aisles yeah. and it didn't feel threatening at all. Felt like just getting the flu shot. Why is it like a a military situation in New York to get one? Well, I mean, you can get it at all different sites, right? You have your choice, your pick of the litter. I chose to get it at Javits because I have dramatic flair and because I I liked the the fact that Hillary Clinton was trying to shatter the glass ceiling and Javits was actually going to be the site of her victory party in 2016. So I have a ton of friends who went there um, election night and we're expecting it to be this glorious, glorious party. And it's Fast like, forward four yeah, years right. and it's the site of a military <laughs> pandemic zone like from The Walking Dead. Exactly. Uh, but no, so I, I partially scheduled the appointment because of my penchant for dramatic flair and I partially scheduled it because it's a mass vaccination site. It's the mass vaccination site for Manhattan and so many people from surrounding parts, suburbs of the city come there. And so, I mean, they just have an insane number of doses. They provide both Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. So depending on your time slot, Mm -hmm. you can choose to schedule one or the other. I went for Pfizer because that was the one that was uh, soonest available, and I wanted to get my shot done before I took the train down here. one shot, right? Uh, Johnson & Johnson is one shot. Okay. Um, Pfizer is two shots. So I have to go back there right around my birthday in a few weeks. and. Um, get my second one. Yeah, I was in a world of pain last night. I was not expecting that amount of achiness and sleepiness. I felt so lethargic and foggy in my head. But the good news is that I was able to extort my husband into getting a sushi for dinner and I didn't have to cook. So it's pretty good. At this point, New York City's numbers are still going up for daily deaths. 
uh, and cases while the state of New York is going down. I mean, are you seeing that sort of on the ground where you live? Because you're a newcomer to New York, yeah. and I want to talk to you about that because I feel so <laughs> bad for you. You moved oh, to New York right myself. when this happened. No, I brought it on myself. People ask, why did you move to New York in, during the pandemic? And I'm like, well, the idea of refrigerator morgues just really gets me going. No, but like it's... it. It, yeah, I mean, it was it was awful during that period in March and April. Um, I moved in June. The reason why I moved to New York to New York is because you know so many of our friends and family are up there, and it felt we'd been. My husband and I had been living in Austin, Texas, up yeah. until then, and as travel became less and less of a thing, it became more regional. It became one of those things where you don't want to hop on a plane, especially in the early parts of the pandemic. We realized we were going to have a whole bunch of friends and family who we could maybe go a year or a year and a half without seeing. Uh, so it was this mixture of wanting to be sort of near the centers of our universe, um, as well as just, I, we like New York. You don't always need a reason to move places. With the rise of remote work and the fact that we're even less tethered to location than before. I mean, mm-hmm. I run clubhouse sessions with people all across the country where we're just like in our own homes, maybe yeah. even all across the world, and it's perfectly fine. We're becoming increasingly untethered from location, and so... Awkwardly, most people, when they become untethered, they realize, okay, I don't have to commute into my office in Manhattan. I'm going to move out to some distant part of the country. Whereas Matt and I were like, well, yeah. crap, we love New York. Let's and move to New York. And that's it's good. Like, go. I, I appreciate the idea of being untethered from location, particularly when it comes yeah. to work. I think we're all experiencing an immense amount of flexibility this year. I hope it sticks. Like, I hope that we can still be the people who work from any coffee shop in the country and get the work done that we need. But obviously not everybody has experienced that yeah. same thing. I mean, people in New York... Are, are they struggling more with sort of like the pandemic, work from home thing, restaurants? Because like you love the music scene, yeah. the restaurants. I can't imagine that it has been good to be in New York at this time where people are untethered from place and not enjoying the bohemian fun of New York, yeah. uh, hanging out with Pizza Rat. Uh, and jumping from <laughs> restaurant to restaurant. Have you eaten in one of those little bubbles yet? Out uh, in the yeah, street? I've eaten. So I've. So there's so many different components to address. First of all, just because Pizza. the New York bohemian lifestyle still exists, there is a thriving circuit of underground raves in New York. I highly recommend like Gothamist coverage as well as uh, the Cuts coverage of this. Uh-huh. It's crazy. The enduring party spirit of New Yorkers. Secret like, COVID raves. I mean, people are dropping acid in warehouses at 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah, it's New York. I mean, there's still a little bit of that. There were these uh, raves underneath bridges that were like a big thing for a while there. I will not divulge whether or not I've participated in any of these things. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Let's talk about Texas a little bit when it comes to the pandemic. They have handled it differently. Uh, They just dropped the mask mandate in the state, Mm -hmm. I believe, as of March 10th. Mm -hmm. Um, Has it killed thousands or millions of Texans? (sighs) I mean, it was Neanderthal thinking, according to President Biden. So it must have that? it must have killed people. Yeah, that's what he said. Neanderthal thinking. Yeah, Neanderthal thinking, which is offensive to Neanderthals, first of all. <laughs> um, second of all, like there, I, I hate that soundbite for many reasons. Uh-huh. One of which is that I think it encourages this, you know, turning your nose up at the uneducated, lowly masses, the slovenly masses of Texas and Mississippi and these other states that repealed their mask mandates. I just don't think that's a healthy attitude to encourage. I don't think that's a good example to set. I think it's a, a really offensive thing to say. And, and the data bears it, it, it all out. There was so much fear-mongering and so much hysteria about how the mask mandate being lifted would result in people, you know, dying en masse in Texas having this huge surge in cases. It's been, what, 17 or 18 consecutive days of yeah. decline in new cases right now? And it's also worth considering... And the the some- Chamber of Commerce, like, they 
encouraged and worked with a bunch of conferences to pull out of the state because of the mask mandate being lifted. So as soon as business might have been happening in the state again, hotels and the Chamber of Commerce were like, no, we want the mask mandate. So they pulled out. So this this is all pretty complex. So basically what's happened, at least in Travis County, Austin specifically, there's been this fascinating legal battle where Austin is a very blue city, as we're all aware, in a red state. So Mayor Adler and other, you know, Travis County public health authorities were basically like, no, we want to keep our local mask mandate in place, even though Governor Abbott has revoked it for the entire state. That's the right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it seems perfectly reasonable. And if you go around, you know, my old neighborhood in Austin, nothing is changing as a result of a, a statewide mask mandate being revoked. What's actually happening is, you know, local private businesses are setting their own standards based off of mostly like what their clientele is comfortable with. And frankly, none of these places have been fully compliant from the get-go. Like, let's just be real here. You you see capacity restrictions for indoor dining in all states, in New York, in, in Manhattan, in Texas. And it's like, well... I mean, sure, but like, you know, this doesn't actually hew to the spirit of this. This isn't actually compliant. If we wanted to attempt to enforce it, like, come on. The reason why, my theory, the reason why they don't enforce it is because it would be impossible to do so because everybody's violating it left and right. Mississippi has done the same thing. They have also now revoked their mask mandate. They are also now reporting the lowest cases that they have had of new COVID instances and infections since the pandemic began last year. It just... What frustrates me about everything that you're saying is why do we not know the truth about how to fight this thing? Why do we not have a sense across the country about how you're supposed to deal with the pandemic? I think some of it's because there are so many confounding variables, right? We can't, we don't have the ability to A-B test this, right? Because at the same time as these mask mandates are being repealed, we're also seeing wonderful warm weather. That means that people in Texas are just naturally taking their gatherings outside. And we know that outdoor events are less likely um, to be you know, super spreader events right. or even significant spreader events than indoor you know, places in, in parts of New York. Yeah, they said so, winter would be bad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different factors where it's really hard to parse out what the specific mechanism is, what the specific thing is that's affecting cases rising or cases declining. One of the things to consider is that the rate of vaccination, I know there's been lots of negative press coverage about Texas and their low rate of vaccination. I was reading a Texas Tribune article yesterday that said something along the lines of, they're, they're very left-leaning, at least that's my perception of it. It said something along the lines of like, oh, only you know 12% or 13% of Texas's population has been vaccinated. They're not doing so hot. I mean, not not in such an op-eddy tone, but that was, you know, nestled into this hard news report. And so I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. But we know with Moderna and Pfizer that it's something like two weeks after first dose, even before you get your second dose, it's like 80% effective. Right. So what I'm curious, the other variable that I want to know is after how many people have received first dose, even if they haven't received second, because we should begin to see some amount of decreased transmission with more and more people getting their first dose like I have and like you have, Right. And so I looked it up, and it's something like 25% of the state's population has received at least one dose of the vaccine. Okay, so why wasn't that data point included in this Texas Tribune report? It's, it's a useful piece and with of information. That, like, you, were, you were mentioning to me yesterday, the CDC director came yeah. out on, on, a, on a live stream just the other day and was talking about impending her sense of doom. An, impending doom. <laughs> CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensk, I mean... This is bizarre to me. She says, I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential where we are, and so much reason for hope. But right now, I'm scared. Why did she do that? 
The numbers are dropping around the country. We're getting vaccinations. Was this just about her trying to connect with people, about like sharing her heart and her sense of fear? Because didn't, that was irresponsible. Didn't she say like, oh, I'm going off script, and then she didn't actually really go off script? It wasn't script. off it script. It seemed very canned and rehearsed, It was right? like, it was hey, this. I'm going off script right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going off script, and now let me rattle off like all the ways in which I'm yeah. empathetic and understand what people are going through, which great. I'm glad you understand what people are going through around the country. But what does that have to do with the impending doom? I think what it is, we've seen so much hedging on the part of public health officials because, I mean, for whatever reason, I think in part because they keep feeling like if you just implore people to not let up, to not loosen right. up. Mm-hmm. You know, but the thing that's so confusing about it is she's saying we might be on the precipice, on the cusp of a fourth surge. And so please, please stay at home. And what I'm confused by is, well, the first three times when you implore people to stay at home and to put their lives on hold... It didn't really work. And they don't get vaccinated. Yeah, right? So the fourth time, instead of your messaging being, hey, get your vaccine, get the first shot available to you, do it ASAP, hurry, hurry, hurry. Instead, her messaging is, you know, she's echoing, she's like, heed my warning, but it's the same warning that you failed to heed the last few times. Because of course you did, because we're giving absurdly cautious guidance to people. What, uh, what's the weirdest clubhouse room you've been on lately? There, there are new and exciting ones every single day. Which is the one that's weirded you out the most? That's weirded me out or that's been the weirdest? Weirdest. I think weirdest one has probably been, there was an ultra trad con, like trad room that felt, I mean, they were even using vocabulary terms that I didn't understand. They were like incomprehensible to me. I don't know. They read books? The term Lindy, I don't know what that means. This seems to be something that- Like calling someone a Lindy? Like saying something is Lindy, which I think is a positive thing thing in trad vernacular trad dialect i don't understand but they were just advocating for all absolutely kinds of you know sexist and and sort of semi-racist things and i felt there was this like very pro-natalist and pro-theocracy uh tone to it coupled with this sense of like women get back into the kitchen uh go do the laundry type thing and i found it so distasteful and unsettling don't get so, me wrong, it should so, be banned, though. Like, well, it's perfectly ask, fine. I, why, I didn't. <laughs> why don't you want it to be banned and monitored? Because you've been writing a little bit about this regarding journalists are losing their minds a bit over yeah. Clubhouse. Um, the New York Times in particular, Taylor Lorenz, a journalist there, has been covering Clubhouse. Everybody drink. You said Taylor Lorenz. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Uh, she's watching everything we say and taking <laughs> recordings. But like, why is this even happening? Why does Clubhouse, an app where people get onto a Discord voice chat room, like people have already been doing for, I don't know, years, um, why is this suddenly threatening to people? I think, so, so the New York Times terms this unfettered conversation, which has been, you know, widely, roundly mocked, as it should be, right? Because, no shit, it's unfettered. That's perfectly fine. That's like, like we, that's, that's something when that I we do. That's what bar, normal conversation is. When I go to the bar, it is unfettered. <laughs> right? The only person who can actually tell me what to talk about is usually the bartender. He's like, no politics at my bar. <laughs> so it's mostly unfettered. But. One of my tattoo artists has, has the very hard and fast no politics rule because he's very libertarian. He's just, he lives in Austin and he's sick of liberals coming in and being really annoyed about stuff but it's funny because he always he he tells everybody about this but then when i come in he wants to talk about politics because i'm a libertarian too and i'm like oh like you're violating your role (laughs) like come on have some consistency no i think it's really threatening to people because um i think it's partially because clubhouse is seen as the purview of silicon valley dudes and there is this strong anti-tech bro sentiment i don't even want to call them bros because that seems uh, inaccurate and uncharitable. Uh, you could call them Silicon Valley innovators or Silicon yeah. Valley, um, 
creatives or I mean they're creatives in a sense they're creatives in a different we way we all have a picture of who VC, VC bros are and people yeah. imagine Clubhouse being created by those but when I get on Clubhouse all I see is intersectional this intersectional that <laughs> like just like the most sort of like lefty weird sort of chat rooms ever how do you even find these really like horrible offensive chat rooms I mean, where I don't know like, there's a mixture I mean so some of it is this sort of like agglomeration effect or like who's in your network type thing so if you follow people and I imagine Taylor Lorenz follows lots of Silicon Valley people lots of tech people because she is apparently a tech reporter um and so that's how these things pop up in her feed but I think it's also worthwhile like it's worth considering there are Torah study sessions on Thursday nights on Clubhouse uh, led by a prominent rabbi who's the author of a gazillion books. And there are a whole bunch of cool conservative and libertarian and even liberal intellectuals who are attending these Torah study sessions of all faiths, right? There are Uyghurs, um, you know, and Uyghur activists who have fled China uh, who are trying to, you know, have both Chinese language and English language chat rooms to talk about the plight of the Uyghurs and, you know, to even see, to talk a little bit more about, you know, will Clubhouse has been banned in China, of course, but what are other ways that new technologies, emerging technologies, can make it so that people in China can actually discuss the political situation? I host, they I host a in. Saturday chat room on Star Wars. Big surprise. And... <laughs> Only in that chat room have I been able to get a global perspective of how people think right. about like the force and like oh what the goodness. whole the whole Jedi doctrine means. We have this guy who joins every week from an Indian reservation and he mm. only talks about like the Jedi and the Force through how Native Americans understand it. And that's the kind of like exposure you get on, on Clubhouse to just random people that you never would have gotten before. But just like the rest of the internet, if you turn over stones and look for ugliness, there's ugliness. Big surprise. Right? It's unsurprising that that's how it is. I, I sat in on a Clubhouse session uh, that was about it, it, all kinds of European and libertarian topics of interest. But I asked a question about why is it that the French have really, really high vaccine opt-out rates? This is like a well-documented thing, but it's especially prominent in the news right now because we're seeing European vaccination campaigns just doing abysmally. And so I was really curious, like, what is the cultural dynamic at play that's making it so that this has caught on? Like, French people are not, as somebody who doesn't really know very much about French culture, I was fascinated by that and surprised by it. And I got somebody who is a, you know, an American expat, Texas expat, who lives in France, it, who was able to explain all these cultural dynamics at play. And I, I left it feeling like I am better equipped to write on these types of topics or even to edit my reason colleagues on these things. Can you recap a little bit the criticism that went towards Clubhouse from the Pointer Institute for Journalism? Um, I mean, really, really great institution. I like Pointer a lot. Yeah. They do solid work on journalism as a nonprofit. Um, their write-up on Clubhouse seems to indicate that because the Chinese government is concerned about Clubhouse, you should be too. Yeah, they. I. The most charitable explanation I can think of, and I think it's always in our best interest to be charitable, is that. Yeah, no, no, I can't think of a charitable one. I keep trying to like work myself into these mental gymnastics. I'm thinking like, oh, maybe it was like a snarky kicker, and they felt really attached to it, and they were trying to make a point, but it wasn't quite super well thought, thought through because that was also it was shoved in in the very last paragraph so it wasn't a huge Hope line sinker yeah, Xi right? <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't the thesis of the entire argument but to act like oh an authoritarian regime is threatened by something and therefore it makes sense that we should all feel threatened by it too to me shows a, a terrible understanding of the ideas of of you know surrounding the first amendment in this country and Xi Jinping is threatened by Winnie the Pooh 
Yeah, Therefore. right. Because he's caricatured. They say he looks like him, like Winnie the Pooh, and so he's caric- There are these political satirists yeah. who who go for it. And it's just, banned, right? Like yeah. you can't depict Winnie the Pooh. I mean, so many things are banned in China. In fact, that reminds me of the South Park episode, banned in China. Where there's literally a, a band who goes to China. It's this goofy play on words. So, I, I mean, I get, I think I understand why the journalism establishment is threatened by Clubhouse. It's the same reason that they uh, it's particularly decentralized. like, well, like left it's journalists unfettered. feel threatened by most things, which is they view platforms as they shouldn't be neutral. They should be organized towards like the highest good that the left believes would be good. And engaged in heavy content moderation. I think there's also a component of it, which is that Clubhouse doesn't keep a record. There's no way, it's technically against terms of service to record a room, especially without the consent of all speakers. And so Clubhouse, by its very nature, you're not supposed to be recording it. There's not a clear, I mean, even if you did record it, you would have hours and hours of conversation to wade through as opposed to when people put their unsavory beliefs on Twitter and then you can screenshot it or you can just retweet that tweet. And it's this easy way to hold people accountable if you see that as something that you ought to be doing as a journalist activist, right? Because also I think it's worth considering like, sometimes those two identities merge and there are journalists, but they're also kind of activists. Yeah. Um, and I think Clubhouse is really threatening because there's not a record of what's being said. And you know what? I frankly, sometimes I sit in rooms like the completely concerning trad room that I was in and I felt, hmm, are these people a little bit more uh, unhinged? Uh, girls gone wild, but trad's gone wild because they know that there's no record that exists of what they're saying. That very well might be a dynamic at play that's making it so that people are more extremist. But self moderation works. Like we already are able to associate well, with people yeah. who we want to share space with. And yeah. if somebody hops into your room, the space that you've carved out for yourself, and they're making your people feel uncomfortable, unsafe, threatened. You boot them. Yeah. And if you report them on Clubhouse enough, they get kicked off the app. The best part about... Like Taylor Lawrence. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, the best part about Clubhouse in terms of accountability is that it says who nominated you. Whenever you're on the app, it says who brought you onto the app in the first place. So not only you're sort of on the hook for bad behavior, but the people who recommended you to be on the app are also on the hook. That is the ideal, I think, of how you want to do freedom of association you don't go looking for rooms that you don't like. Like Taylor Lorenz was reporting on <laughs> rooms going on in Clubhouse that are titled Why Are People Glorifying Prostitution on Clubhouse? Deems this problematic. Uh, because as she's well as, pro-sex work and thinks people should yeah. not so she was like, why the is there, sex work. Why is there a room called Sex Work is Unacceptable? Yeah. Well, the reason is that because this is not an agreed-upon thing. Like 80-something or 90-something percent of the population believes that sex work is unacceptable, and people, journalists at the New York Times, should surely be aware of where public opinion lies on these things in order to appropriately speak to those people, right? I, like, I came around as a libertarian. Like, I get it. <laughs> but you can't just, like, pretend that Clubhouse is supposed to adhere to a 10% of the population yeah. view on something that has always been taboo. People, well, it's not supposed to do anything. It's spontaneous, right? That's the fun part of Clubhouse. It's organic. It's spontaneous. It's unfettered. It's unrecorded. These are, these are features, not bugs. They can be bugs. I can see why people are threatened by them. There's also the point to consider on Clubhouse, which is it's like, it's like what we're doing here. I'm not going to start calling you insane names, and you're not going to start calling me insane names because I'm afraid. I think you can beat me up. Um, and you have your daughter here behind in the other studio, and I know she's going to beat me up more than anything. Ten-year-olds cannot be underestimated. No, but I, I think there is a culture of civility in some of the best rooms on Clubhouse is, um, yeah. because it's intimate. You're hearing people's voices. It's like you're in the same room as them. Uh, you are hearing the background noises. Sometimes you hear a little kid interrupt their parent. Uh, and and there's there's this, since it's not so anonymous, since it's not so detached, since it feels like maybe we still hew to these rough standards of etiquette and we sort of simulate the way we act in person, 
I think people are just a little bit more understanding. I also think tone, being able to read tone, majorly helps people. Huge. Because, I mean, sometimes I say something that, that seems, you know, flippant, but I'm, like, giggling while I say it. You and so never, people, yeah. yeah, so people know that it's not, I'm not actually trying to be hurtful. Uh, I'm going to rant about them later to my friends, but I'm not trying to be actively hurtful, you know? And so I think the tone component is really useful. And I think, I think... People are so threatened by emerging forms of technology and decentralized uh, platforms and platforms with less and less content moderation. They they don't know what to make of it. And instead of seeing some of these wonderful benefits of it, they're seeing the ways that it can be used by radicals and by extremists. And then they're saying, oh, the company ought to crack down on these radicals or extremists, not understanding that whatever you apply to crazy right-wingers you can also apply to crazy left-wingers, right? Like these things might, you know, you have to be very, mm-hmm. very careful before you set this precedent. And I'm personally on the side of, instead of attempting to moderate the crap out of it, what would happen if we just allowed it to be unfettered and just sort of, you know, let's watch and see how it plays out. Let's see whether it is like, you know, a boon for human connectivity and, and like communication. It's it's astonishing get, to me that people are so threatened by it. No, you get more. And I guess that that begs me to ask, like, why have you not started a substack? <laughs> Everybody, the decentralization is happening everywhere. And I feel like the, the freak out about Clubhouse like came right on the tails of a freak out about these things called Substack newsletters. So some yeah. of your favorite establishment journalists are leaving their publications where they worked at before or being run out the door by their colleagues and are being In some, in some situations, publications they founded. Yes. Right? Like, like Glenn in, Greenwald, The Intercept. And Matt Iglesias mm-hmm. from Vox. Um, Barry Weiss left the New York Times. Andrew Sullivan, New York Magazine or The New Yorker? Yeah, one I of the other. so. One of those. Um, all these people can now be found on Substack. Really great journalists, essayists, they're being paid a premium by Substack to be there and run a subscriber-based yeah. model. And this has been driving people crazy because these are like the contrarians of the newsrooms. Yeah. And the question that you were trying to get at earlier was like, is this like a symptom or a cause of our problems that we're having with media? And Substack, I'm a little unsure which it is. So a few things about it. One, uh, I was looking this morning about you know, when did it really start to become a thing? I know when it became a thing in the discourse, but when did it really start to blow up in terms of paid subscribers? Having a blog? Yeah, well, no, right? Like, having a blog has always been a thing, for crying out loud, people. I mean, that's the funny thing about all this. This is a new uh, technology and sort of a new facade, a new label, a new platform, but it's slapped onto an old Old concept, right? Like, we're just reinventing things. Um, But, I mean, Substack had something like, it broke 100,000 paid subscribers in March 2020. So, I mean, it's been in existence for something like three years, three and a half years now, but it's only recently begun to really pick up speed and become, you know, a thing that people actually care about. Now it has something, uh, I believe, over 500,000 paid subscribers. It's really uh, taken off in the last year, especially as people have been trapped at home in the pandemic. I wonder whether people have more voracious appetites for reading and for reading specific things from Well, I think they want to have more control over the quality of the stuff they read. I mean, like, you can get your New York Times subscription or your Atlantic subscription, and you kind of just have to stomach all of the bad outputs that they they create. You're dealing with an entire newsroom, an institution of journalists who are going to be producing a lot of bad work and some really good work. And that good work is wonderful. I get the Atlantic every month because I'm, like, dying to hear, like, from one or two different writers. Who are they? Um, so Connor Friedersdorf would be, would be one of them. Um, and 
I, I just imagine Substack is like, I love this person. Caitlin Flanagan is wonderful at The Atlantic, too. Yes, she I was in the last edition. Like, Substack is where you pay for that one person's work, and you in, mm-hmm. believe in that person, and you hold them accountable. You pay them for their service of being a journalist or an essayist every month, and if they betray your trust, you just unsubscribe. Yeah. But with the institutions, they expect you to subscribe to them no matter what they do, because they have the mantle of the establishment. It's, yeah, I... I So my main thought on this, and there's a really good, I don't know whether you're familiar with the writer, very far left, Freddie DeBoer. No. Um, He's freelanced for a gazillion places over the years. He's had a very long career. I believe he's primarily an academic and he's written some books and he's, you know, been in teaching positions. Um, But he had a really good Substack piece recently. I'm forgetting the title, but the, the broad premise of it was journalists are acting like they're mad at Substack. But they're not actually mad at this. They're mad at the industry, and they're mad at the industry's decline, and they're mad that um, you know there are, are a few star reporters out there. But there are an awful lot of reporters just trying to you know mine the world for clicks, trying to churn out thousands and thousands and thousands of words every week, who are paid you know thirty five thousand yeah. dollars a year or forty thousand dollars a year with no real opportunity for advancement. And they're sad that you know they went to these bright, shiny journalism schools and graduated in 2008 or 2009 or 2010 and expected to go into this thriving and honorable industry, and instead they've sort of you know inherited this ash heap. Um, and they don't know how to keep up. They don't know how to adapt. They're they feel spurned. They feel sad about that. They don't know how to leverage their skills. He also makes a really good point, and I, I love this. He's not a libertarian, but I think from a libertarian perspective, he makes this point that. There's a market for heterodox thought, uh, like the type that Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and Matt Iglesias provide via Substack. Yeah, the contrarians. Yeah, one of the challenges, though, with traditional journalism models is that pretty much every damn journalist who lives in Brooklyn does the same thing where they're a woke scold in their writing and then their journalism. And they're a talented writer, but they have this, this, they tinge it with activism and with a specific far leftist political agenda that is often not representative of the public at large or even of the people that they're interviewing. So they're not actually doing straight news reporting. They're injecting a little bit of their own uh, bias and slant into it. But then they also have this like woke sarcasm brand that they've made for themselves that permeates their Twitter presence, that permeates their media appearances. It feels a little bit sneering. It feels a little bit like too clever for their own good. And this is like, we can think, I mean, of so many journalists and they all live in the same freaking zip codes in Brooklyn who brand themselves this way. And it's an oversaturated market. Why would you want to hire these people when you know exactly what you're going to get? And they're a dime a dozen. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of journalists like this or even thousands. Um, I think he makes a really good point that you need to be aware of your value in the marketplace and how you're differentiating yourself. And a lot of people don't know what they're doing in that area. And Substack, in a sense, helps people test out, is the product that I am providing something that there is demand for and that people really want to pay for? Yeah, I think you put you put it just perfectly. And that is uh, the best place to round out that conversation. <laughs> Liz, thank you. I'm going to subscribe to your Substack when you one day have one. It'll just be um, cooking and recipes. But when you when you work at Reason, you know who's stifling yeah, I don't need you. It. So you know you don't need to yeah. have a Substack. It's I'm very fine. blessed. <laughs> if you've been paying attention to the talk about immigration recently, you've heard two very different stories about what's happening at the border. Either President Biden is doing his best with the mess Trump left, or the Democrats are engaging in full blown hypocrisy by keeping kids in cages and just not caring anymore because their guy is in charge. Our friends at the Narratives Project are helping to sort this out. They study the evolution of divergence of political narratives to help us understand the stories emerging around us based on what each side is saying, but also what they're leaving out. 
On the border issue, they found that the narrative on the right goes something like this. There's a battle going on at the border that is threatening the safety and security of American families. This is a natural consequence of the Biden administration's pro-immigration policies and the chaos at the border, the hypocrisy of the Democrats who are now apparently fine with kids being in cages, and it's stark. The view from the left, on the other hand, is that we have to recognize that this administration inherited a profoundly dysfunctional immigration system and we're in the middle of a pandemic. We can't just turn kids away who arrive at the border and send them back to the dangers that they are fleeing. So here's what it all looks like on Twitter. You had MSNBC pointing out to viewers in a Lawrence O'Donnell monologue saying, the real crisis at the border is the Republican Party's opposition to the humane treatment of immigrants. Here's a tweet from Republican Senator John Cornyn, quoting a New York Times article that says, Biden has instead emphasized the humane treatment of immigrants. He contrasted that to more restrictive comments from Biden's Democratic predecessors in the White House. The point of the Times article was that the Democratic Party doesn't have a clear policy on immigration. <laughs> Here we have Mark Krikorian of the Center for Immigration mm -hmm. Studies tweeting an image of a chaotic scene from the naked gun with Leslie Nielsen deadpanning. Nothing to see here. Nothing at all. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy tweeted a link to his floor speech that he said explained how Joe Biden is doing the right thing by applying the law with humanity. <laughs> What's wrong with that? The narrative project found that when it comes to immigration, both the right and the left talk about the issue in terms of protection. The left wants to protect immigrant children seeking a fresh start, and the right wants to protect people, including the thousands of children coming here, from the dangers of illegal immigration happening like this, chaotic scenes. It says the nuanced truth is that the right doesn't hate immigrants, and the left doesn't hate the rule of law. Both sides agree fundamentally that immigration reform is necessary. But exactly what that should look like, like that's the debate. And we're yeah. always going to be having a debate over the virtue and morality of people who see a problem that is not getting solved by, by our, our Congress, getting solved by the government, and they just want people to be happy, they want people to be safe, they want kids to be taken care of. Um, it's impossible for Americans to have a sane immigration debate when we're not talking about legislative fixes. Yeah, it's um, it's really upsetting to me. It, it's upsetting that, and I, I've noticed this, especially in recent years, it feels like the goalposts have sort of been shifted. So when people talk about, um, you know, the sort of liberal or libertarian perspective on immigration, they say open borders, people, open borders and all this stuff, which I think is a perfectly defensible position. But it's confusing to me that they're framing that as what the majority of liberals and libertarians believe because it sounds very scary, I think, to immigration restrictionists. But it's confusing because it's like, why aren't we talking about and regular people? Yeah, open yeah, borders fair. sounds scary to regular people. Fair, fair. Yeah. Um, but why aren't we talking about drastically increasing the number of work visas available, or student visas, or you know, the ability to have more and more people seeking refuge and seeking asylum? A lot of the times, I think you could get more reasonable people to agree on what we want if you framed it as hey, let's 3x the number of work visas available to people. Let's 3x the number of student visas available to people. Let's really prioritize Central American migrants uh, because that's where we're seeing this huge crisis right now. And honestly, let's make sure we're not splitting families up at the border. Those who legitimately have asylum claims, can we treat them with some amount of you know, compassion, especially when there are all these religious charities at the border with open arms waiting to receive them and take care of them? 
Yeah, I mean, you have to acknowledge that there's nobody who wants this situation to be happening. There are not people who want kids to be kept in cages. They don't want them to be there in the first place, coming for the hope that they're just going to be let in. That's not how anybody imagines the immigration system working. Nobody wants it to be that way. In theory, you used to have people who wanted people to get in line, right, like go through the process. But I think what libertarians understand is there's no line. You will be waiting for 30 to 40 years. The exact title of a Reason article from like, you know, a print article from 2018 or 2019. I mean, the premise was there is no line. And it was the story of somebody who had immigrated to the U.S., I believe, um, you know, for academic reasons on a study visa or maybe uh, teaching a work work study visa. Um, And their, their point was basically, hey. I got really, really lucky, but a bunch of other people with the exact same profile as me, they're going to be waiting for 30 years. Yeah. I feel like what broke, and we talked about this um, two weeks ago on the show, was that immigrants are being talked about by different sides of the argument as potential constituencies for their voters, right? Like, so Republicans are talking a lot about, like, Venezuelans and Colombians. What can you do for me, right? And and the left has been talking for decades about how, like, anybody who comes to the country threatens the Republican Party. Like, that's how they've always reported it. Whites are going to be a minority. Republicans need to get in line or they're going to, if they don't get behind or or back Hispanics, um, you know, vice versa then they start to think of them as the opposition and they start to think about immigration as running up the numbers for the other team and then it becomes unworkable. Yeah. You're not going to be able to come to a consensus on what's good immigration policy if it's about who's going to be getting more voters in the end. It's really deeply upsetting to me. I mean, I used to, my mom is actually from the border, um, originally from Texas and from that part of Texas. And I've crossed the border on foot several times going from actually El Paso to Juarez. Documented? Yes. I mean, I have my, I'm, I'm typically one of the only like white people uh, with my U.S. passport. I get better treatment in that line than most other people do, which feels pretty uncomfortable. Um, it's really interesting when you cross over from the U.S. side to the Mexican side, you throw 25 cents or they might have raised it to 30 cents in a little trough. You just throw it in as if you're doing a toll on the Jersey like Turnpike. Rows, yeah. yeah. You just throw it in. Nobody asks for your passport or papers or anything. You just waltz right on over. You can go to Barson Morris. They allow you to smoke inside. Highly recommend it. Um, and then on the way back, it's like hours and hours of waiting sometimes. And it's men with German shepherds and guns. And it's, I need to see your passport. And you go into this line and sorting and all these things. And it's just, it's a jarring experience. The contrast between crossing from U.S. to Mexico versus Mexico to U.S. I also think one of the really striking parts, and I, I encourage everybody to visit El Paso and Juarez if they get the chance, um, you know, this is a city where it's they operate as sort of twin cities, as sister cities, but so many people, their lives are, you know, they span the border. Their lives are half on one side, half on the other side. I met a guy sitting in a bar in Juarez, an American citizen, born and raised in America, who fell in love with a Mexican woman. Uh, they got married, had two children, ultimately got divorced, but they have a joint custody agreement and it's cross-border. So, you know, he runs a dental practice in Juarez. Yeah. He lives in El Paso. His kids split their time between Juarez and El Paso. And their family gatherings are on one side or the other. But that's how so many people in this part of the country live. The It's, it's really good evidence, regardless of your political ideology, that lots of people engage in commerce and have all kinds of relationships that uh, really uh, the border is more of a hassle for them. It's it's horrifying watching families be, even in this very like small and mundane way, it's harder for them to spend time with wow. each other because of this artificial line that we created. I think that this analysis that we just went through, like it gets it correct. Everybody wants this situation and the border to be safe. And currently yeah. the way that it is, it's not. It's not safe for anybody, Americans or otherwise. Big thank you to our friends at the Narratives Project for helping us out here. You can see more of their work at narrativesproject.com. 
Every week we round things down with some good news, positive trends, and signs that not everything is awful. If the media does have one bias, it's not necessarily partisanship, it's bad news bias. So, steak. I'm a big fan of this plant-based meat trend. That's like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat with their ground beef alternative that actually smells and bleeds like actual beef, which is really gross to say aloud, but that's just the way that it is. If you like meat, you want it to be looked and smell that way when you cook it. So I think this could change the world. It's gonna reduce a heck of a lot of animal suffering and really reduce emissions worldwide, slow climate change, those are good things. Now, Aleph Farms, an Israeli company, has produced the first 3D printed plant-grown ribeye steak. I thought this would be impossible. Like, I really didn't think it was going to be done, that there's a sort of international race to see who can who can unlock a steak first. That's the a new complex arms piece race. of meat. The new arms race, but for eating. It's right. happening It's happening <laughs> everywhere. Like, there was this global race to try to get ground beef out the door and mm -hmm. have it be good for people. Um, Beyond Meats and Possible Foods, like, they're doing it. And McDonald's is carrying it. Starbucks is carrying it. So I'm it. curious, are you vegetarian? No, vegetarian? I'd never okay. be a vegetarian. <laughs> no, like, actually... Just this nice boy from North Carolina. The reason... No the reason I, I like it is I really do care about the animal suffering part of it. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, meat tastes amazing. It makes me happy to eat. Yeah. And if you want me to be a vegetarian, you're I selfish want, is what you're saying. I want to be happy. I want to enjoy my life. Yeah. Um, and so as long as the alternatives are great, I'll eat the alternatives. So interestingly, I feel like we're both sort of, there's this range of people, some of whom are super ethical and principled and have this strong stance against animal slaughter. Uh, and other people who are like, you know what, like, I like my burgers and I'm going to eat them. And I feel like we're both somewhere in the middle where we're both concerned with animal welfare. For me, actually, so I no longer eat meat. I am a pescatarian. I eat fish. I actually haven't eaten chicken in about four years. I, every once in a while, will eat meat um, out and about, especially, you know, in Chinatown. A lot of uh, Chinese mm -hmm. cuisine includes some amount of, of, of pork product in there, even if it includes tofu or seafood. And so it's a little bit hard to avoid to have a good Szechuan meal without any pork. So... I slip up every once in a while, but at least in my own home, I cook entirely vegetarian, pescatarian foods. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that really made it so I was able to do this this push uh, and to make this ethical choice was the fact that when I crave uh, a delicious burger, I'm able to recreate uh, in and outs uh, animal style burger, which is absolutely wonderful, this glorious mm -hmm. cheeseburger. I'm able to recreate it with an impossible patty. I came around to this because my two favorite podcasters, both as Recline uh, on mm -hmm. the left over at Vox, um, now the New York Times, and then Ben Shapiro. We're both talking Glenn about Greenwald, this. Glenn Greenwald, I think, is also yeah. vegan and has slowly transitioned. Well, they were both talking about this the same week. Ezra Klein was oh, talking cool. about the animal suffering part of, of trying to fix the meat industry. And then Ben Shapiro was like, we actually are going to feel very badly about this in, in several decades. So this is a thing. Like, we need I, to fix this on a moral remember. level. I believe it was New York Times had this whole series a few years back where they said the 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 question that they presented people and asked them to sound off about was 50 years from now, what things that we currently do in our society will be unthinkable, yeah. will be considered so beyond the pale. And the two answers that appealed to me the most, and we won't get into it, but like we're abortion, abortion. and eating animals. Yeah. And to me, I mean, I have this That whole, was the Shapiro answer too. Yeah. I have this whole spiel that I can go down where I think actually being vegetarian or being vegan is very consistent with being pro-life. It's very consistent with caring for the suffering of the least of these, to put it in biblical terms. Um, but all of that aside, that's for a different show, a different time. Um, I, I do think we might look back and say, how is it that we allowed animals to fester in these awful conditions? We have something like 130 million chickens slaughtered every year. 
I used to raise chickens at my little house in Austin. The idea of keeping my own pet chickens in those types of conditions that they're kept in at factory farms, to me it was unthinkable. Doesn't, and it doesn't so have I be- to be this way. I began to interrogate, yeah. why is it that I don't want to keep my animals, keep my pets in those conditions, yet I'm comfortable contributing to a system that does that for all these other animals? What's your good news? I think it's mostly the same, right? It is. Uh, actually, I believe a chef in Hong Kong a few weeks ago uh, cooked a fish patty for the first time, a lab-grown fish patty. Um, and he said at first it was really hard and the texture didn't quite seem right in the raw fish form. <laughs> he made it into a burger. He served it with tartar sauce. He cooked it well. And he said it actually came out wonderful. Uh, and so, at least for me, as he... Uh, a devotee of the fish arts. Uh, I truly love seafood so much. Um, That's exciting. It's, it's really cool thinking about, you know, there are so many issues with overfishing. There's even issues with the amount of mercury content in some fish populations. Mm-hmm. What if we can sidestep all of these things because of technology? Well, you know, we, we got into this entire last year of nightmare that we've been living in because of the things that we eat. What if it was made in a lab and it was a little bit safer Everyone, thank you for joining us. Remember to subscribe on YouTube and leave a comment if you'd like. I will answer it myself. And you can also like us at RightlyAJ on Twitter and Facebook. See you again next week for right now. Our guest is going to be Vox co-founder and author Matt Iglesias, who you can now find on Substack at slowboring.com on why we need one billion Americans. See you then.